0: Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Choice Tradition.
1: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson.
0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning to discuss national security. And we're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and even from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. We were going to do a show on Russia again today part of that multi-show exploration I have planned for us as we considered modern Russia. Professor Catherine Stoner from Stanford University was going to be our guest, but uh, events over the past week have sort of pushed us in a very different direction. Uh, So for today, in case you hadn't already heard, Afghanistan fell uh, to the Taliban far faster than anyone could have predicted, sort of shockingly fast, as as a matter of fact. And we have two guests with us today who can help us to understand a number of things about this situation and and the outcome. We're joined again today by Tom Hansen. Tom was our very first guest on National Security this week when we first came on the air on January 6th. Yep, that's right, January 6th. It was an interesting day, not only for this show, but also for our nation. Uh, Tom is a retired Foreign Service officer with the U.S. Department of State. His diplomatic postings included East Germany, France, Norway, the Soviet Union, Sweden, and the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. He also supported the opening of new U.S. embassies in Mongolia and Estonia. He worked on the foreign relations committees of the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives and served as director for NATO and European affairs at the Atlantic Council of the United States in Washington, D.C. Tom holds bachelor of arts degree from the University of Minnesota and graduate degrees from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy as well as the Institute of Advanced International Studies in Geneva, Switzerland, and the National School of Administration in Paris, France. We're also joined by another career Foreign Service officer, Bill Davney. Bill Davney served in the Foreign Service from 1981 through 2007, with postings across Eurasia, from Hong Kong to Lithuania and Finland to Tajikistan. In Tajikistan, he also monitored Afghan issues and traveled there to visit Tajik refugees. His final posting was in Iraq, working with provisional reconstruction teams. Bill grew up in Wisconsin and Minnesota and studied Islamic political thought in Indonesia before joining the Foreign Service. With Tom Hansen and Bill Davney, we're going to have a fantastic discussion about the events this past week in Afghanistan. Uh, So, Bill Davney, welcome to National Security This Week. I'm so glad you could join us.
2: Glad to be here. Looking forward to this.
0: And Tom Hansen, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, John. Thanks so much.
0: So, gentlemen, we have a lot to discuss today. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to start with a kind of a focused set of questions about the country team and the embassy in Afghanistan, and then we'll expand out from there. Uh, all three of us personally know Ross Wilson, who's a, a Minnesotan by choice, and he's the current acting U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan. R- Interestingly enough, Ross took the assignment. He came out of retirement, in fact, uh, during the Trump administration, and he was asked to remain in Kabul when the Biden administration took over in January. Uh, The news reports tell us Ambassador Wilson and the entire country team are safely evacuated to the airport and are overseeing operations. So let's start our discussion today uh, by explaining to our listeners what it means when a U.S. embassy carries out an evacuation. I'm sure both of you were trained to react uh, to crisis situations during your many assignments throughout your careers. What can you tell us about what the country team went through when the evacuation order was given at the U.S. embassy in Kabul?
2: Let me first uh, take a little picky note on
0: sure. That's why a
2: lot about the embassy being evacuated. Okay, uh, but in fact, it has not been.
0: Oh, okay, all Many right.
2: Personnel have left in a drawdown, but the embassy remains in country. There were news reports over the last couple of days saying the U.S. as well as the U.K. ambassador and others had fled they had moved from the embassy building to the airport. Now, th- this may sound like it's arcane and irrelevant, but <laughs> it is meaningful in a diplomatic context that uh, Ambassador Wilson and uh, a core unit in the embassy are still in country. So we have not evacuated the embassy. That's the term we use when we actually pull out all staff and shut the embassy. Okay. What we had here is a massive drawdown of most personnel And the last numbers I saw were that we had about 90 of our embassy staff still at the airport, although about two thirds of those are security personnel, uh, not the consular officers and others that are helping to process the people leaving.
0: Okay. And, Tom, when when a drawdown like that occurs, what's sort of happening amongst the country team members as uh, as we prepare to leave an embassy uh, like this situation?
1: Well, you know, John, it really, uh, it kind of depends on the scale. Uh, Obviously, uh, Afghanistan with up to 5,000 employees, this is a huge operation. Um, It's taking a lot of coordination. Uh, I I went through evacuation or near evacuation situations in smaller posts where it's quite quite different. Uh, For example, I was in Georgia um, when it looked like a civil war was about to break out again, and we were uh, to be airlifted out of the country uh, by U.S. forces from Turkey. That was was ready to get the entire staff out of there in a quick surgical strike. Um, Well, I was in Moscow uh, after Chernobyl, and uh, depending on the wind direction, uh, we had plans to draw down what they call non-essential staff. And that's usually the first phase. Uh, And this this can be um, family members uh, and other Personnel that are deemed uh, not essential to the immediate task at hand, and then it goes uh, sort of uh, step by step uh, from there. Now, one you know, looking at the other end, we have many posts that are called non-accompanied, where in fact the drawdown happens even before uh, you know before anything begins because the, the staff is already limited by the situation in the country. So, um, as I said, it, it varies quite a bit. And Bill, I mean, you were in Iraq uh, in a large embassy; you can probably speak better to to what's happening in Afghanistan?
2: Every embassy has an emergency action plan with steps um, and tripwires, as we typically call them. Um, what's the situation in the streets? Are the police still in control of normal movement? Is the airport open uh, for free travel? Um, or are we going to have to bring in you know, special help? Um, and obviously, this is, is based AT THE EMBASSY IN TERMS OF of DRAFTING AND PLANNING, BUT IS COORDINATED WITH WASHINGTON AND IS COORDINATED THROUGH ALL THE AGENCIES REPRESENTED AT ANY EMBASSY. SO, DEPARTMENT OF DEFENSE PERSONNEL, uh, INTELLIGENCE PERSONNEL, um, ALL THE AGENCIES THAT MAY BE THERE, uh, DRUG ENFORCEMENT, U.S. AGENCY FOR INTERNATIONAL DEVELOPMENT, AND MORE, uh, BECAUSE EACH BRINGS A CERTAIN PERSPECTIVE AND EACH ONE HAS uh, EXPERTISE AND INTERESTS THAT COME IN when you're dealing with an embassy this big, the military role obviously is massive because that's where any capability of carrying people out is going to come from. Yeah. And the final decision is made in Washington. Um, and sometimes they want to move quicker even than the embassy wants to. Uh, in this case, it may have been the opposite.
0: So so would you agree that this is essentially what we refer to in the military as a, a neo or non-combatant evacuation operation? Is that sort of what's happening out of Kabul right now? That,
2: exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In fact, while that is a military term, as you know, it certainly <laughs> floats around embassies all the time when, when you're looking at this kind of a, of a case.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so so now that we have sort of the, some of the framework down of what happens as we do a drawdown or or an all-out evacuation of our embassies, let's let's turn specifically uh, to what's happened in Afghanistan, where the the Taliban essentially comprised the the new government. Why why do you think the Afghan government collapsed so rapidly? And and Bill, let's start with you.
2: One issue that I have been written about. ALMOST ENTIRELY, I'M AFRAID, BY THE SPECIAL INSPECTOR GENERAL FOR AFGHAN RECONSTRUCTION, um, WHICH IS A SPECIAL OFFICE CONGRESS ESTABLISHED WELL OVER A DECADE AGO, um, IS CORRUPTION. Okay. Um, THAT the, THE SYSTEM THERE REALLY IS PAYOFFS. Uh, THE LEGAL SYSTEM, JUSTICE SYSTEM, OPERATES BY BRIBES. THERE IS a, a FLOW OF MONEY FROM TOP TO BOTTOM, WHICH USES A LOT OF OUR MONEY. Um, yeah. THAT'S we can go there later. But uh, we, we were kind of funding the corruption that we ourselves identified as a principal weakness of the government, that the government didn't have credibility with its own people because they were seen, A, as corrupt, and B, uh, as our creation, not as an Afghan creation. Okay. And this had been the case for a long time. Uh, this, was, this is not something that happened in the last year or two. This is the last 12 years minimum or longer. Um, since we surged back in, in, you know, sort of the 09, 10, 11 period. Um, and so it was it was a fragile, it was a hothouse flower of a government. And the minute there was any chill, um, it couldn't survive. And that chill, I think, happened when the, the agreement, peace agreement, or whatever we want to call it, was signed uh, over a year ago. And the end of the financial flows from the United States was seen. Mm. And after that, it was... It was, you know, just the the any stability was under eaten as people said. In the long run, um, we can either have a lot of people dead by continuing to fight, or we can cut a deal. And they cut deals. Yeah.
0: And, and Tom, how do you see it?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, part of the problem is is uh, as a very tribal, uh, warlord based, almost pre modern society uh, with with a whole different concept of governance than anything we're used to. Uh, I think we never really understood what was happening outside of Kabul. Um, Language issues come in there too. I mean, it was a tall order. And I think there was a whole period um, before this sudden collapse of deals being struck all around Afghanistan. I think the Taliban were coming in, uh, especially as Bill said, once that peace agreement was signed in February, 2020, Um, they knew we were leaving. And so I think a lot of this had been pre-cooked. I think that uh, that local warlords, local leaders, even perhaps the local Afghan forces, uh, had already been in touch with the Taliban, and, and that this was uh, this was already uh, in the offing. Uh, so once it started to collapse, it went very quickly. Um, you know, it's it, it, you know our whole idea in Afghanistan has been counterinsurgency. Uh, David Petraeus, of course, uh, is the great you know author of that concept for us. And you have to have a reliable partner on the ground in order to pull off a counterinsurgency campaign. We never had that. As Bill described, it was a corrupt government uh, based on, uh, you know, our our funding. Um, and, uh, and, and so this, unfortunately, was something that was going to happen, and it, it happened more quickly than we thought.
0: Yeah. And, and I would highlight uh, that one of the things that I think I learned during my career as an intelligence officer in the Navy was that when you're, when you're talking about counterinsurgency, uh, if the people in the country you're trying to help are not actively engaged in defeating the insurgency, you cannot win. Because right. even if they're just sitting there kind of on the sidelines not doing much, you're not going to win. And if they're actively supporting the insurgency in any way, you're not going to win, especially when you don't have a partner in the government you're trying to prop up. So it was a, right. t- it that, was a tough that's, challenge.
2: That, that's absolutely correct. And I think there was a a desire in the the selling of the the war, uh, in the United States in particular, more broadly, to identify the Taliban as a terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they're a nasty bunch. I'm not in any way defending them. Yeah. But they this really was a civil war, right. one that they had won back in 1996. Mm-hmm. They then got pushed out by us in 2001 and have spent 20 years getting back. Right. But what that means is they had a substantial population base that may not have actively supported them, may have, but certainly didn't consider them a an, an enemy or a, a you know a, an outsider. They was their own people, right. uh, and the Pashtuns from whom the Taliban come are nearly half of Afghanistan. Certainly, far and away the biggest group. So we define them in a way that the Afghan people themselves did not define them.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1 and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Bill Davney and Tom Hansen, two retired Foreign Service officers in the U.S. Department of State, and we're discussing the collapse of Afghanistan. Uh, so, gentlemen, we we just touched on uh, back to 2001, so let's go back in time, twenty almost 20 years ago. Uh, President George W. Bush sent U.S. forces into Afghanistan beginning in October of 2001, as operations commenced to, to try and destroy the Taliban and capture or kill members of al-Qaeda. Uh, that was our national response to the events of September 11th, 2001. From your perspective as career diplomats, what was the U.S. mission back then? And I ask this in, in sort of the context of something that we bring up here on the on the radio show quite often, and that's this concept of the tools of national power. How are we using our tools of national power to achieve national security objectives? And in this case, we invest ourselves into Afghanistan. What was the mission back then
1: as you saw it? Um, I think that um, at the very outset, of course, in the, in the aftermath of 9-11, it was to uh, attack al-Qaeda and remove uh, al-Qaeda's uh, ability to operate uh, against us. And so it was a pretty focused mission. And I think that the turning point came very early at a, in a meeting. Uh, it's been described by people by people like Douglas Feith, uh, Cheney's former aide, uh, what to do about Afghanistan. And Colin Powell in the State Department argued that we have to go in and get rid of al-Qaeda, but we must leave the Taliban in place and triangulate with Pakistan to keep them in line. In fact, Richard Armitage uh, threatened to bomb Pakistan into the Stone Age if they didn't go (laughs) along with us. And so that was a a focused mission. Now, apparently uh, uh, Cheney and others, you know he had the famous 1% doctrine, there's even a book with that title, uh, if there's a 1% chance something can go wrong, take it as 100%. Mm. And they argued for getting rid of the Taliban uh, itself, in other words, a regime change. So that was a, a, a development of the mission which offended Pakistan because we had basically promised them we would not do that. We were bringing the Northern Alliance in. The Northern Alliance is an ally or is seen as an ally of India. Mm. And so as our mission expanded, the regional dynamics kicked in. And Pakistan went from being a supporter of what we were doing to, be an, to being a de facto opponent of what we were doing. Yeah. And, of course, then it went on to nation building. And now I'll just say in terms of tools of national power, this was an all of government uh, uh, situation and approach mm-hmm. under the aegis of the military because it was a military occupation. And so you had the whole U.S. government brought in, including, the, I mean, Bill and I know what happened at the State Department with Provincial reconstruction teams, USAID came in, but always under the aegis of the military. Yeah, and um, this was, uh, I, you know, it was it was a a very um, draining situation for the State Department as we seconded more and more diplomats out of embassies to serve this occupation mission. Uh, there were two thousand unfilled positions in U.S. embassies uh, not not long into this conflict. Um, and so, uh, you know, the British had a colonial office for this kind of thing. They, they would no more have drawn down from their diplomacy or <laughs> other uh, agencies uh, in, in an occupation like this. But we took it out of the hide of our whole of government, and, and it led to great destabilization in the State Department. Um, and, Bill, you can maybe talk about what that was like on the ground as the agencies worked together, uh, you know, in this in this mission. Yeah,
2: I, I... We can get to do, do some of that. But I was thinking, you know, John's point about, you know, the tools of, of national power, national, you know, uh, planning. But I was I've been thinking back in, in 2001. I mean, 1991, the Soviet Union collapses. Right. Know, we win the Cold War, quote, unquote. Yeah. And the 90s, we I think we saw as the epitome of the G1 period. You know, <laughs> there was only one country that mattered. Yeah. And we were you know, yes, it really wasn't that great a decade. you know, Yugoslavia collapsed, the Rwanda genocide, but we knew we were number one, and there were books written about how history had ended. you know, democratic governance was the inevitable direction of all nations. And I think that the shock of nine eleven um that someone would attack us was was not only a tragic event, obviously. But it was a, such a shock to our pride that we really were not prepared to, to cope with. So we reacted and we said, we can remake Afghanistan in our image because after all, we are all powerful. And so the, the hard questions that should have been asked about how will we do that with the tools of, of national power weren't really asked.
0: Uh, another thing I'll, I'll ask both of you is, you know, the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine, I think that's sort of become one of these things in the military circles anyway that we try to adhere to. Uh, and when we don't adhere to the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine, uh, we fail. And uh, from your perspective, did we, the United States, adhere to the Weinberger-Powell Doctrine when we inserted uh, combat power into Afghanistan initially and certainly as we ramped up our, uh, our goals and objectives for a future Afghan state? What do you think?
1: We didn't really have a clear exit strategy Um And uh, what was Colin Powell's famous, you know, if you break it, you own it. I think that was uh,
0: for Iraq, yeah,
1: for Iraq. But, um, you know, once you get into the kind of nation building that we and of course, uh, you know, a lot of people in the Democratic Party were very, very uh, attuned to some of the human rights issues Mm -hmm. uh, in Afghanistan. Um, And so as the role expanded in that direction, I think that obviously it became no longer just a military occupation. It was. It was nation building, which is a whole different thing. And um, uh, that's a hard thing to do in a country like Afghanistan, to say the least.
0: Yeah, and, and I think maybe that's worth having a little conversation about. So if we think about it this way, the U.S. and our NATO allies, you know, we backed the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan and assisted them kind of initially in routing the Taliban. Uh, we failed to capture or kill all of the al-Qaeda members and certainly the Taliban members at the Battle of Tora Bora. And many of those uh, Taliban and al-Qaeda members fled into neighboring Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, into that, the federally administered tribal areas. So the U.S. then decided to help Afghanistan to establish this new government and to begin rebuilding their nation. So here's the question. Is nation-building something the United States does well? <laughs> what, what's your take on the effort in Afghanistan and, and other places maybe where we've tried to help as uh, 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 sort of examples to look at? And maybe, Bill, we'll start with you this time.
2: Yeah, I, I, it, it, it. It's almost obligatory that Americans affirm (laughs) that we can, you know, build other nations, we can help them out. Well, we we often, still today, we're hearing people talk about, look at what we did in the Marshall Plan, Um, look at what happened after, you know, to Japan, not not being in Europe, Um, by which we quickly, of course, forget that, you know, in Europe and in Japan, uh, there were well well-founded, well-structured, well-based modern economies by the standards of their time—they'd been decimated by war—but all the preconditions of educated uh, population and, you know, administrative structures and a, a the basics of a bureaucratic state in the yeah. best sense of bureaucracy right. was there. Yeah. When we've tried to do this in Vietnam, in uh, in Cambodia to some limited degree, in obviously in Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, even in Iraq, which is a much more sophisticated country than Afghanistan, yeah. we didn't understand how to do it. We disbanded their army instead of restructuring their army in a way that could have helped. And we essentially handed the army over to the resistance. Um, we, we see things in our own image. I mean, mirror imaging is one of the you know, classic errors of intelligence analysis. Um, right, and we see things in our own image, and think that we they will people will react the way we think we would react, and it just doesn't happen. Yeah.
1: and um, and you know, nation building. Uh, you know, the, the Russian ambassador in Kabul, uh, who had been the head of the KGB while the while the Russians were the Soviets were in Afghanistan, w- would give interviews to people. He was very loquacious, and he would cite the three reasons that the american effort was going to fail in afghanistan and also why the russian effort had failed and number one was he said the afghans have a visceral reaction to any outside intrusion Mm. of any kind whether it's nation building counterinsurgency the idea of a foreign power coming in uh, is anathema to the afghans second he said you don't know who is whom you could be training something or somebody and you don't really know who that person is And of course, we had a lot of incidents of of that kind. And this may be part of the the sudden collapse we're seeing, too. And then third, he said civilian casualties will doom your mission. And even as we're trying to build the nation, help the girls, we were uh, and the Afghan government, uh, you know, were responsible for some atrocities there. And and those were, you know, had a big resonance in Afghanistan, not to Mm -hmm. mention what the Taliban was doing. So nation building. But how do you do that on the basis of a military footprint? and as an outside occupying power, I think that it is just, um, especially in a country like Afghanistan, and, uh, you know, I think that we've we've got a learning curve here, Uh, and and American public opinion indicates that that at least they are learning this more than the elites in Washington. Yeah. The the blob is
2: still at work, I'm afraid. (laughs) the uh, The blob was a term, you know, from President Obama in particular, but Referring to sort of the, 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 the group think of Washington. Yeah. And as Tom just said, we're, we're having trouble getting over this. I mean, any nation building effort is the task of generations, right? And the American political system <laughs> operates on a <laughs> two to four year, um, you know, election cycle, you know, at best, um, there's, there's a, I've seen it at the Pentagon. There's something about, you know, we plan out a, you know, a 30 year weapons program based on a, you know, a, a four-year projection of expenses on a, you know, on a two-year, well, one-year appropriation, <laughs> and it's all decided on a decision memo that, that has to get written over the weekend. <laughs> right.
0: That is true. That is true. Having been at the Pentagon, I can tell you that's very true. Yep. Uh, so I think we come to the conclusion that nation-building sometimes works. Uh, Japan, Germany, and Italy is great examples from World War II, even, even South Korea as an example from the Korean War. But as yep. you said, there were some... Uh, established norms of society and strong central governments had been part of those uh, those cultures. But it may not work well in places where a fractured society exists, in places yeah. where so many disparate interests, uh, be they ethnic, religious, or cultural, are jockeying for political, economic, and even security control over uh, all or even parts of a country. So what is it about Afghanistan that makes it such a difficult place to build political consensus? Well,
2: well for one, it is certainly the ethnic... Distinctions: um, The Pashtuns uh, from whom the Taliban, uh, you know, emerge are 40, 45 percent of the country. There hasn't been a census in years, but uh, <laughs> roughly um, and are dominantly in the south, but not exclusively. And then you've got substantial Tajik and Uzbek populations in the north um, and uh, Turkmen. Uh, you've got the Hazaras, which are ethnically somewhat distinct, as well as being Shia rather than Sunni. Um, you've got to, this is one of our biggest mistakes in 2002, when we with European allies and others was reestablished the constitution for Afghanistan that was a unitary state, Uh, you know, a central government that was going to run the place because that's how you would, you could, you know, execute and build a nation. Um, Well, it's not a unitary state. I mean, the only way you could have Afghanistan as a nation is when it is a a loose confederation of regional leaders—the nasty term is warlords—but these are powerful people who control resources and people, and who are respected inherently from the ground up. Yeah, you can't you can't replace that with a unified government. Right. So again, here was where our Western sense of here we're here's how we're going to run this thing just you know collided. Totally to a totally opposite local scene that we were unwilling to recognize.
1: Yeah, and uh, exactly right. Um, And and the Pashtuns are the key. Uh, You know, they're the largest group in Afghanistan. Uh, You know, when Colin Powell back in 2001 argued against uh, uh, eliminating the Taliban, he said we'll get ourselves into a civil war with the Pashtuns that we can never win, and that's what happened. Um, The other problem is that the Pashtuns are a people that are divided. uh, a good part of them live in Pakistan, divided by the Duran line, which was drawn by the British. They eventually would like to have their own state. And so uh, you know you had Pashtun reinforcements and interaction coming out of uh, uh, out of uh, Pakistan the whole time, which is was a lifeline for the for the Pashtuns. Um, you know the one leader who might have led that northern right oh, yeah. Massoud yeah. was assassinated on September 9th. I mean, two days before 9-11, somebody knew what was coming. Um, it, w- would he have been a viable, strong leader for a government that we supported? Nobody can know because, uh, you know, but this, it was weak leaders after that. But so this ethnic mix is uh, is something that plays into the regional dynamics between Pakistan and India. Uh, India uh, is it, closer to the Tajiks, the Hazaras, the, uh, the Uzbeks. So, um, I mean, on... Many different levels. This was a very hard country to try to bring together, yeah. and frankly, in most of its history, it's never been together. I mean, it, it, even in the mid 20th century, people would report going out, and local leaders had never heard of the government in Kabul. <laughs> but, I mean, literally, uh, it is that medieval. Yeah. So this was a tall order that we yeah. took on. Uh,
2: in to be very, you know, stereotypical at a at a broad level, um, there are a number of regions in the world typically heavily mountainous regions like Afghanistan, which are notorious for clan-based politics and, and complications. My own ancestral Scotland, you know, the clans are, are you know, were, were famously divisive and killed each other off and, and you know, cut deals and, you know, were, were treacherous, you know, with, with the, the, the kings of England and whatnot. Uh, the Balkans, Another area of ethnic complexity and mountainous regions that, yeah. that uh, the, the Caucasus, yet another. Um, these are not unique factors, but they do mean you can't approach this and say, oh, we have a unified populace that all speaks the same language, has the same values, right. et cetera. And, and yet, that's basically what we did. Um,
0: so. Uh, I have to do a quick uh, audience uh, reminder that you're you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests today are Tom Hansen and Bill Davney, two retired Foreign Service officers with the Department of State, and we're discussing the collapse of Afghanistan. Uh, So, gentlemen, we were talking a little bit about the region uh, there just before we took a quick uh, identification break. Um, Let me ask you this. Let's consider the nations bordering Afghanistan. How do they adapt to this new reality? And and what I would suggest is uh, on Monday night, I watched a replay of the U.N. Security Council meeting that happened uh, Monday during the day, and it was kind of clear across the board that every one of the countries uh, on the Security Council right now, U.N. Security Council, were making roughly the same statements. Uh, Interestingly enough, the only nation that brought up what what used to be called uh, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement was was the uh, chinese ambassador sure. uh, so let's do kind of a round robin around the afghan borders uh, tell me what you think is going to happen uh, uh, among those bordering nations with regard to this new reality in afghanistan and uh, tom let's start with you
1: yeah, yeah well i mean i think it, i think the basic point we need to keep in mind now is this is transitioning to a regional issue yeah uh and you know you can argue that we should have played this on a regional basis from the beginning yeah uh as we as we would have if we kept kept working with pakistan so obviously india and pakistan are the key to to this pakistan feels that it has won in a way its ally now is in Uh, india feels a great loss here um (laughs) china has very close relations with pakistan Right. And so I think you're going to see the Chinese uh, exerting influence in, in Afghanistan via Pakistan, maybe channeling money even via Pakistan, to, not to appear to be too directly uh, involved. Um, Iran uh, and Russia are also interested. So so these three countries uh, well, four now, China, Russia, Iran and Pakistan are going to be very important. We're going to have to work with them. We're going to have to just bite our tongues and work with them on, on, on trying to trying to stabilize this situation. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. That, you know, China wants to bring uh, Afghanistan into the Belt and Road Initiative. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Central Asia. Uh, you know, if you look at this geopolitically, the United States has been trying to assure a footprint in Eurasia, in Central Asia. Yeah. We don't have a capable ally there. No. Uh, the natural ally for us would be Iran, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. in that region. That's and true. And, of course, we're that not is about true. to do that. Yeah. So Pakistan, I mean, Afghanistan never was a viable footprint, and we're going to have to totally reassess our policy toward Eurasia, the central part of Eurasia now on the basis of what has happened. And we're going to have to work with these regional forces. It's going to be hard to shift like that, but it's going to be part of our adjustment to the real world situation as it is right now.
0: Yeah. And that, Bill, what's your, what's your assessment? I mean, the yeah. nature abhors well, a vacuum, right?
2: <laughs> well, nature abhors a vacuum, this, this is for sure. But I think it, it's also helpful. I mean, the Taliban, at least in the 1990s, <laughs> and we don't quite yet know what the Taliban is today. That's true. But certainly in the 1990s, when they won, was, I think, purely nationally focused. It was not an international terrorism threat in any way, shape, or form. They only cared about controlling their own country, coming out of the chaos that was left once the Russians, the Soviets, pulled out, and we abandoned them. Yeah. Um, whether they're still that way is a good question, and, and we're going to want to know. Um, there was, I think there's been too much made of the Taliban, uh, you know, protecting and, and supporting al-Qaeda. Uh, yes, they did allow them in. There's no doubt about that. But the events of 9/11 may have been approved by Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan, but they were uh, worked out and implemented in Hamburg, Germany, and in the United States. Sure. So, you know, to the extent that there may be a risk of terrorist actions being planned in Afghanistan, as Tom just said, we're going to have to work with China and Russia, both of whom share those concerns. China, in particular, in relation to Xinjiang and the East Turkestan Islamic movement, yeah. uh, Russia, because of Central Asia. Mm-hmm. So, if we actually do care about this issue, and it's not just one that people are pulling up for, for headline's sake, um, we're, we're going to have to talk to these people. And the odds are, I would suggest, that the Chinese, perhaps via Pakistan, uh, and the Russians have, have better intelligence on Afghanistan already <laughs> than we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we kind of showed that ours is a little little frayed, um, so that's going to be important. Iran, historically, of course, has ruled certain parts of what are now Afghanistan. The city of Herat is a, a Farsi, Persian-speaking city, um, used to be part of, of the Persian kingdom. Um, it's, it's, of course, Shia, and the Taliban are hardline Sunni. Um, but at the same time, we can—we we Americans, we love to draw rigid distinctions here. <laughs> you know, there's black and white, good and evil. Right. Well, the Shia and the Sunni have problems, there's no doubt. But many of these people in those parts of the world have also lived with each other for centuries. Yeah. And sometimes things go south and other times they cope. Um, so <laughs> Iran's going to figure out how to cope. The Taliban's going to figure out, you know, how to cope. Uh, but it does mean that there are other players now who are active and yeah, we need a big policy rethink. Yeah um if, if we're gonna have any any kind of coherent presence in that whole I, I might
1: add I might add very very briefly, John, that that, that Hamid Karzai, the former president, has been playing the China Pakistan card for years now. Yeah. He has talked about how that, that is Afghanistan's future. And he is being brought on now by the Taliban as one of the three uh government you know they're going to try to broaden the government right so i expect karzai actually to play a role um uh, whether behind the scenes or directly in this shift toward a kind of a pakistan china you know regional focus for the taliban i agree with bill that they i think they're more aware of this now than they were uh you know in their previous time in government
0: all right let me put it also
1: reflects that we we need a level of sophistication that
2: you know diplomats are capable of you know our best Minds IN WASHINGTON AND ACROSS THE COUNTRY ARE CAPABLE OF, BUT TRYING TO SELL SOPHISTICATED POLICY TO AMERICAN POLITICIANS AND THE AMERICAN POPULATION <laughs> IS REALLY HARD, BECAUSE WE WANT A FRIEND OR AN ENEMY, yeah. YOU KNOW, yeah. uh, THE the ENEMY DEPRIVATION SYNDROME <laughs> THAT WAS SPOKEN yeah. OF AFTER THE COLLAPSE OF THE <laughs> SOVIET <laughs> UNION, um, we, WE'VE we GOT TO GROW UP AND WE, we DON'T DO THAT VERY WELL. Yeah.
0: So I'm going to put both of you on the spot. Uh, Bill, I'm going to start with you. Who is the big winner after this turn of events, in your opinion?
2: Uh, in the immediate circle, I think pretty clearly Pakistan. Okay. Uh, and more broadly, uh, in terms of, of the big picture geopolitical, probably China, because it just pushes us out of uh, what was not exactly a strong or helpful footprint. But, but still, it, it means we're not really going to be
0: in mainland West Asia. Sure. Yep. And Tom, mm-hmm. what do you think?
1: I agree with Bill hundred percent. And I think we could be a winner in this if we draw the right conclusions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's up to us. Uh, this, this Good is, uh, this is crystal clear what's happened here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we can look back now over the past 20 years since 9-11 and, um, I think we can emerge a winner in a, in a certain sense from this.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to, so that's actually a perfect lead in because the next question I wanted to ask you is, uh, What are the lessons the United States should learn from the collapse of the Afghan government after 20 years uh, of our commitment to to them in in both blood and treasure? And and what I would offer as a quick thought, uh, maybe to spur this discussion, is when I was at the Naval War College, one of the things they talked about to us over and over and over again as we studied different wars throughout history was, do the combatants understand the nature of the war in which they are involved? And uh, that is one of the most important ways to sort of look at the lessons learned. What lessons should we learn from this, from this uh, result in Afghanistan? Uh, Bill, let's start with you.
1: Well,
2: I, I think we, we should learn this, the same lesson we should have learned, you know, in Vietnam, that propping up a corrupt government uh, in a civil war um, doesn't work. Um, it, it, the, the government will not have the strength to sustain itself. We got a better, decent interval out of leaving uh, Vietnam than we got out of Afghanistan. But the, the problem, of, we, we did not define the conflict as a civil war. Yeah, if, if, back to your point. And when, when we define it wrong, we then attempt to solve it in ways that do not, in fact, address the situation in that country. Um, we had We were still very confident in that Cold War era of Vietnam. As I said earlier, I think we were confident at the end of the 1990s turn of the 21st century that we were still capable of restructuring the world in our image. And that's something we ought to to now understand we really can't do, not only because it can't be done, point one, but there are other forces and influences in a newly multipolar environment that really mean we
1: can't do it. Sure. Yeah, I think um, uh, adding to what Bill said uh, and, and what you said, John, about it, we need to understand the country better. I mean, we, we, there's a need for, I guess you could call it empathy in foreign policy, uh, trying to understand the other side on their own terms. We, we we tend to try to have a cookie cutter and impose our values, our paradigms. I, I, going forward in this complex multi. Polar world we're going to have to learn a certain kind of empathy and understanding of other cultures i think also um it shows uh, the need for regional diplomacy as i said we should have been doing that from the very beginning uh i think it shows the limits of air power you know we've seen this in uh, in, in involvement after involvement yeah that uh we, we, you know, with our great strength from the air that's not enough to handle the situation no like the one we had um in afghanistan uh, you know, we need an exit strategy. And finally, um, just in terms of ends and means, uh, uh, you know, what they call overstretch, yeah. which I think our country is in danger of committing now. Um, uh, if you look at our budget and everything else, you know, we lost two thousand four hundred and forty eight Americans. That's what Jake Sullivan said yesterday. The precise number of Americans killed. Uh, it's cost us a trillion dollars. If you add Iraq, it's up to five, four, five, six trillion dollars. Um, this is money that could have been spent. uh in our own region or at home. I mean, there, there's a there's a trade off. We, we have exhausted a lot of blood and treasure here. Yeah. Um, we have to be more serious about our commitments, it seems to me, and, and weigh these kinds of trade offs. So um, those are among the lessons that I would cite.
2: I have to if I've got another second here. Yeah, to, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think we also need to remember that while we may have lost 2,500 troops and then there's enormous physical and psychological damage to many more troops, uh, the Afghans lost, you know, on the order of thirty times that many, yes. or, or 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 more, and that's not even counting the refugees and the other stresses on life uh, in Iraq. Similarly, you know, the death fat figures there for our opponents um, and for civilians who were killed as collateral damage are are massive, and that's not only a moral issue, which I think we should pay more attention to when we when we talk about the numbers in these places. Uh, WHICH IS OBVIOUSLY I THINK IMPORTANT. BUT IT'S ALSO A PRACTICAL ISSUE, um, AS TOM, WITH A REFERENCE TO AIR POWER, um, EVERYBODY WHO GOT KILLED HAS A RELATIVE, right? AND the RELATIVES DO NOT HAVE FOND MEMORIES OF THE UNITED STATES. Yeah. Um, SO WE PAY A LONG-TERM COST WHEN WE GO IN IN WAYS THAT, YOU KNOW, DO ALL THIS DAMAGE. AND AMERICANS, BROADLY SPEAKING, WE DO NOT UNDERSTAND HOW PROTECTED WE ARE. You know. Yeah. Almost every nation in Eurasia has been invaded by its neighbors or has invaded its neighbors over time. We haven't been and we don't understand how those countries have had to learn to live together to some degree, at least most of the time. And we don't understand what it's like to have, you know, your village or your town shelled or bombed uh, (laughs) or burned because that hasn't happened to us. But it's the general experience of most of, certainly of Eurasia.
0: Yeah, and and uh, so I'll ask each of you because we're we're starting to close in on our time slot here, and, and Tom will start with you. Um, any last thoughts you you think the American people should seriously think about with regards to this this result in Afghanistan? Uh, I mean, I think we've been talking a little bit about what I would refer to as the lack of an American grand strategy and how we yeah. apply the tools of national power <laughs> we think more about the you know the next fiscal quarter than we do about the next quarter century but uh, any any last thoughts tom on, on afghanistan that you'd like to share and then bill will turn to you
1: well you know a uh, uh, one of our traditional reflexes in a situation like this is to think in terms of dominoes right in other words oh my gosh this embarrassment is now going to make people not trust the american commitment and on and on and on and, and that's been a reason to stay you know, places like Vietnam for as long as we did it. Um, I must say it's, if you look at some of the European commentators, uh, the Latvian foreign minister and others, they are kind of saying, Oh my God, can we trust the Americans? I mean, even, even there's some signs in NATO that, uh, including people like Merkel are saying, this is one more indication of how, why we have to rely more on ourselves, right? That this is a little bit kind of pushing whether this will be long lasting. I don't know. But, um, but, I mean, if that's the case, I, you know, that's probably what they should be doing. I mean, I think, I think the Europeans should take more responsibility for their, for their defense. I mean, we're, we're heading into a more real situation now, it seems to me. Yeah. Uh, now, on grand strategy, there are people arguing, uh, people like Ron Krebs, for example, a professor at the University of Minnesota, very highly regarded, that we should not have a grand strategy. <laughs> that, that this is a situation in which things are so flexible, um, uh, moving so fast that we have to be smart and pragmatic because the problem with a grand strategy is you try to push the facts to, to meet your grand strategy. You, you, you try to manipulate the facts in order to justify this grand strategy that you're following. Um, so maybe we are in a period now where we just need to be a little bit nimble and pragmatic um, uh, and not think so much in these grandiose terms. Um, but uh, as I said, that, that's one school of thought. Others are saying, people like Hal Brands at, at, uh, at Johns Hopkins Sice, who's a rising young uh, star right now, that we, we've got to come to a grand strategy right now. And, and you know, based on this idea of, of the indispensable nation, that we've got to try to remain, um, you know, the go-to nation for stability around the world. And I guess what I wonder is whether that's within our means at this point. I mean, we have to keep our ends and our means uh, uh, and, and in in focus, and I think the last 20 years show that. Yeah. And, and Bill? I think we,
2: we are in a multipolar world. We are still the biggest, most important, most powerful country. There's no doubt about that. Um, China's rising, but it's, it's got other limitations, and it's much more of a regional uh, influence. Uh, I think some of this fixation on, oh, China's just going to charge in and take over Afghanistan and make all this money. They've actually learned that these Belt and Road investments are not all turning out so well. And they're being a little more cautious in their capital investment.
0: Um,
2: But it's a more complicated world than that two-sided, bilateral, you know, us versus the bad guys of the Cold War. AND THAT REQUIRES US TO REALLY PAY SOME ATTENTION TO OTHER COUNTRIES AND THE COMPLEXITIES. Uh, to I THINK IT MEANS WE REALLY NEED MORE DIPLOMATS WITH BETTER TRAINING, MORE LENGTH OF, of SERVICE IN AREAS. Um, I THINK EVEN IN THE DEPARTMENT OF DEFENSE, um, MY UNDERSTANDING IS THAT THE FOREIGN AREA OFFICERS PROGRAM USED TO BE MUCH MORE ROBUST THAN IT IS NOW. Um, I can't, vouch for that, but I mean, I'm not talking 30 years ago uh, versus now. Yeah. Uh, but we need people there who are not only you know, superb at, at tactics, uh, but who've got that broader view. And DOD does much better at training people in that way than state, but the sheer numbers of, at state are so small now. Yeah. and we need to be enlarging our diplomatic presence in lots of countries because the world's not going to get easier to manage whether we have a grand strategy or not <laughs> it's not going to get easier to manage Yeah.
0: so unfortunately we have uh, <coughs> reached the end of our, our show for today uh, this has been a fantastic discussion uh, Tom Hansen and Bill Dabney thank you both so much for taking time from your busy schedules uh, to join us today on, on national security this week.
1: Thank you John and and Thanks for what you're doing with this program. It's fantastic. Absolutely, keep up the good work. Okay,
0: so folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security. This week, we're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. again next Wednesday morning, and I hope you'll join us then. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care.
1: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.
2: The 53rd Annual.